Welcome to the Redeemed Community Church podcast, where you can hear sermons and devotionals from our church located in Toronto, Canada. Our vision is to be a Christ-centered community that makes disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the delight of his people. In today's episode, Elder Dominic Kurkowski continues our sermon series on the seven signs in John's Gospel, looking at the penultimate miracle when Jesus heals the man born blind. All right, good morning, everyone, both to uh, those of you who are in person and everyone who's online. Thank you for joining us today. This is our final week before Easter. That's right, next week, it goes by fast, is Easter, and today is uh, Palm Sunday. And we are continuing through as we prepare for Easter in our sermon series, studying the seven signs uh, in John's Gospel. And today we are on the penultimate sign, uh, the healing of a man born uh, blind. So this is the second last sign in uh, John's uh, Gospel. And I want to begin this morning by asking you, have you ever had a moment, like a wake-up moment, where everything you believed in life, or maybe just about a particular situation, you discovered was completely wrong. And in fact, it's something entirely different. Throughout uh, all of cinema, perhaps my favorite wake-up moment is from Doctor Strange. You know I'm a Marvel fan, so I'm going to use a Marvel movie whenever I can. Uh, If if you're not familiar with the movie, uh, the character Doctor Strange, he is a wealthy uh, neurosurgeon. He's one of the best that ever lived to do the job, and of course, this has gained him much fame, it's gained him much wealth, and it's also gained him a lot of uh, arrogance. So, very early on in the movie, he has an accident, and it costs him the use of his hands, and he does everything he can to try to restore the ability of having his hands function normally again. And he spends all money, does all kinds of different procedures, but nothing works. And then on his his last hope, he travels to Nepal, to what he hopes would be some type of illegal uh, illegal hospital that's running without government restrictions. But when he arrives there, he discovers that this isn't a medical clinic or hospital, but it's more of like a monastery. And the people there don't actually practice medicine. They more believe in things like you know, healing through, you know, belief and other kind of stuff like that. So you could imagine he is angry. He is livid because his entire expectation was this is perhaps my last hope to get my hands back. And instead, he finds these people talking about things that make absolutely no sense that are just like fairy tales uh, to him. And then finally, there is one character that tells him, you know, your problem is that you think you've had the whole world figured out, that you, can, that you see everything for what it truly is, when in fact, you see nothing. And then she says, open your eyes, and then sends Doctor Strange traveling through the multiverse, which is this really crazy, weird you know, scene. But after he you know, finally returns, you know, he goes from this competitive, angered um, attitude in his heart to being on his hands and knees going, you know, teach me this, teach me what you've done. All because he had his eyes opened up. All because he realized that the world is not as it seems to him. And believe it or not, for you and I, we actually need to have such a moment like this. 
we need to have our eyes opened up. And that's what we're going to be talking today when we go through John chapter 9. And the title of today's sermon is Open Your Eyes. Now, unlike some of the other miracles that we've talked about, uh, John doesn't describe the message or the main point of, his mir- uh, of what he's trying to convey just in the miracle. In fact, it, conveys through, it goes through the entire chapter to cover the events that happen afterwards. So what we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to be doing something a little bit different. We're going to be doing like a summary of the entire chapter, and I'm going to be pulling up key verses uh, that help us understand what it means for us to have our eyes opened up and what John is talking about here. But the key verse, and the one that we're going to start our morning by reading, is going to be verse uh, 39. This is the climactic verse of John chapter 9. There we go. And so in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here together as we celebrate uh, Palm Sunday and the final week before Easter. As we enter into Holy Week, God, I pray, Father, that you help us to lay our hearts before you in submission of gladness and humility. I pray, God, that as we go through your word, it would speak to us. Holy Spirit, illuminate the truth into our lives and help us to let go of any false dream, false things that we are expecting. And I pray, God, that, this, that uh, your word Uh, would not just be something that's interesting to listen to, but it would deeply change us in our hearts, O God. So I thank you, and we give you all of our praise and honor this morning. Amen. All right, so what does Jesus mean here when he says, I have come into this world so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind? What does, you know, he mean here? Is he talking about our physical sight? Because if he is, then, well, you and I, we shouldn't be able to see anymore. So there's clearly something, you know, deeper that he is trying to communicate to us. And so to begin unpacking what this verse is, I want to first point out that there are two categories of people. There are those who are blind and those who see. There is no uh, in-between categories such as those of us who have glasses those of us who are legally blind but can still see, just two, two categories. Either you see or you are blind. And to begin unpacking this, let's look at first the first part of this verse. That So the blind will see. Jesus comes so that the blind will see. And we're going to do this by following through the one blind character that is in John chapter 9. And John chapter 9 opens up in verse number 1, introducing us to a character, to an individual who was born blind. All right, so we, are, we learn that this man, he has never seen in his entire life. He has never had the experience of being able to see the world around him. And throughout any point in history, it is, you know, difficult to be blind, even today. But 2,000 years ago, in Judea, it would have been extremely difficult to be blind. This was quite, you know, the challenge. In a world without technology, in a world without a social security net, 
to be blind in a world where you also every job requires you to be able to see, you know, you were helpless. In fact, what scholars notice is that the only thing that you could do in life if you were blind is, is find a well-trafficked area, like the temple or some kind of government house, and, and just lay down on the floor or uh, be on your knees in front of all the people that were walking by and hope and pray that someone would be leaving you money each day. You literally lived your life on the mercy of others. And this is how you know, this man would have lived his entire life. But the story, of course, doesn't just let, uh, end with this man being the same as he was. We see that Jesus notices this man, says he saw them, that is Jesus, he saw this man, and then later on in verses 5 and 6, we are told that Jesus is going to heal this man, right? We see that Jesus puts, um, I guess, his saliva or some spit onto some dirt, makes mud, covers this man's eyes, and tells him to go to wash himself in the pool of Siloam. And sure enough, when the man follows this instruction and he returns home, he is said to have returned home you know, seeing for the first time in his life. Now, I'm going to pause here for just a moment, and there are two things that are really notable about what is going on here. Uh, the first is that what has occurred here is uh, indeed another one of the messianic signs. All right. Uh, Isaiah 29:18. it says that in the day, in the day of the Messiah, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the blind will see. So this is supposed to be another one of the data points in the many list of data points that we have now seen to this point that showcase, that prove that Jesus is God and that he is going to be the savior of God's people. So, that, so John chose to include this sign specifically. Out of all the miracles that Jesus done, he chose this one specifically because it points to Jesus' divinity, and he points to his role as our Savior. But the second detail I want to highlight is going back to the fact that this man was born blind. This is a little bit different from the previous miracles that we have studied so far. If you remember the boy who was sick, he wasn't born sick, he became sick. And even the man who was lame for many years, it says that we are led to believe that indeed at one point he was able to walk and had full function of his body. But here, this man was born blind. And in this culture, that is significant because who you were born, well, that really does kind of establish your identity. It establishes who you are. You are always going to be tied or connected in some way to the person that you were born as. And that means that this miracle is different from the previous miracles that we have studied. For both the boy who was sick and the man who was lame, these are restorative miracles. In other words, they had lost some type of function, whether it was uh, their, you know, their physical body or uh, their ability to move. They have lost something and it was restored to them. But for this man, he, you, you can't restore his sight because he never had it. So it is actually more of a creative miracle. Jesus is creating light. He is creating life to a place where there was darkness, being this man's eyes. 
And so for anyone who was watching at this moment in time, or anyone who would be in that culture reading John's gospel for the first time, as this situation was set up, they would have known right away that this is going to be a much more difficult miracle than anything we have seen yet. And they would have been wondering, could Jesus actually give this person sight? Is that even possible? And that's kind of a neat thing of John's gospel. As the gospel continues, the stakes keep getting raised higher and higher. The things Jesus has to encounter become more difficult and more difficult, and the opposition he faces becomes greater and greater. And so now that we are at the sixth miracle, it is indeed the most difficult miracle that we have encountered. And I want you to remember this idea of it being a creative miracle. Um, Just hold on to that because it's going to become pretty important later on. But as I've already mentioned, and kind of teased a little bit earlier, what's going on here, this is more than just about pointing how amazing and how great Jesus is. Indeed, as we read it, we are supposed to be awestruck by who Jesus is as we see him perform another incredible miracle. But if it was only about this specific miracle, then the story would end here, and we could just go to John chapter you know, 10 to move on to the next story that John wants to talk about. But indeed, things continue for. There is more to go through. In fact, most of the chapter, if we now move past the first 12 verses, most of the chapter is actually dedicated to what happens afterwards, or the fallout of this miracle. And that is the Pharisees' investigation. You know, At this point in John's Gospel, we already know that the Pharisees are kind of Jesus' main antagonistic force, or at least Jesus' main human antagonistic force. Um, They have it set in their hearts to try to bring Jesus down by any means necessary. And so anytime there is this public record of Jesus doing something, they are going to try to see, is there something here that we can use against him? And sure enough, when someone reports of this healing, you know, they come to the Pharisees and they tell them what has occurred. And their investigation is broken down into three stages. First, in verses 13 through 17, they interrogate the blind man to find out what really happened. And for the most part, they're just trying to collect some facts. There's not too much that happens here. But John says that the Pharisees do not believe that he was born blind. And so in the next few verses, from 18 to 23, the Pharisees go to interrogate his parents. And that's the worst thing. If something ever happens to me, I don't want people to be interrogating and bothering my parents. But, you know, that's who the Pharisees are. They're going to go bother his parents now. And they try to interrogate him to find out, was this man really born blind? And the parents say, yes. You know, yes, he was. But John says that because they feared the Pharisees, and they feared being kicked out of the synagogue, they said no more further and said, this man is of age. If you want more information, you go talk to our son for yourself. And then that leads us to the second interrogation of the blind man. The Pharisees interrogate him again. And this time, the interrogation is far more heated and confrontational. The Pharisees try to get Jesus, uh, the man to say that Jesus was a sinner. They hurl insults at him. They accuse him of being steeped in sin, and eventually they cast him out of the synagogue, all because he was healed. 
And yet, despite experiencing this pressure from the Pharisees, you know, the, these religious leaders who his parents were afraid of, we actually find out that this man actually shows a great resolve in his heart to remain firm in what has happened and to not disown Jesus under any, you know, circumstance. In fact, as the interrogation goes on, we see his firmness for God only grow further and further. And so in the next slide here, I'm just going to point out, indeed, the kind of the, I'm calling this the blind man's journey, because we see a progression of him growing in his faith as these series of interrogations continue. So first, in John 17, he begins by just describing Jesus as a prophet. He gives him great credit and great respect by describing a prophet, but he ends there. But then when we come back to verse 25, we see that he is actively defending Jesus' actions, and he is actively defending who Jesus is as a person. He is not giving in to the Pharisees wanting to try to make him say that Jesus is a sinner. By the time we get to verse 17, he actually invites them to become Jesus' disciples. He says, do you also want to become this man's disciple? In verse 13, 34, he begins correcting them about their teaching, actually telling the Pharisees, like, actually, you guys have got it wrong. You're, you're making some mistakes here. And this all leads to the moment after he is cast out of the synagogue, after he has now become an outcast once again. He thought he was an outcast because he was blind. He was glad that he could see, but he was outcasted again. And this leads us to his second confrontation with Jesus. And, he, when, and it says that when Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he had found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the blind man says, Who is he, sir? The man asked, Tell me, so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. So this man's journey, and this is the last thing that we ever see from him in John's Gospel this man's journey ends with him saying, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped with him. He calls Jesus his Lord, and he worships him as his God. Now, if you have been with us for every sermon in this series, you may have noticed that there's a little bit of a parallel between this story that we have just read and the story that we have read in John chapter 5 about the man who was lame, who, was, who Jesus healed to be able to walk again. They're very similar in, in many ways. Both feature someone receiving a miraculous miracle that, restore, that, uh, that restored them or changed them. But in John chapter 5, once the man, was in, the, the man who was lame was interrogated by the Pharisees, he disowns Jesus. He tries to remove himself as far away from possible. In fact, he even, uh, once, the, once he finds out that it was Jesus who healed him, he actually goes to the Pharisees and points out, oh yeah, it was definitely Jesus, and there he, you know, his. He completely shows the opposite reaction to the man that we are reading about right here. So the question I think we have is, why are there these two different reactions? Why does one person in response to his miracle, completely give up on Jesus and completely throw him under the bus. Whereas the other man goes through this 
discipleship process to where he confesses that Jesus is his Lord and he bows down and he worships him. And the answer to this question points us to the real miracle of this story. As wonderful as it is that Jesus opened this man's physical eyes to see the physical world, the real miracle is that Jesus opened this man's spiritual eyes to allow him to see that Jesus is God and to see that he is the Savior for his sin that he has been waiting for. So if we go back to verse Uh, verses 4 and 5, right before Jesus performs this miracle, he gives us a clue that his work is not about the physical but the spiritual when he says the following, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. If Jesus was just doing a physical miracle, this makes, would make absolutely no sense for him to say that I am the, you know, the light of the world because you know, Jesus wasn't actually physically glowing, you know, light. He is talking about a spiritual reality, and this is something that John talks about a lot in his gospel. He uses light and darkness to convey spiritual metaphors, and I actually think that these are very appropriate metaphors to talk about our spiritual, uh, spiritual condition, light and darkness. Now, have you ever experienced um, being in complete physical darkness before, a moment where you have not been able to see anything at all. Chances are, if you've had that experience, it probably wasn't very pleasant. Uh, Last week, Justin gave us an example of a story of when he went camping, and I felt obliged that I must share a camping story uh, too, because I love camping so much. Uh, So there was this one time when I was camping, like, you know, many years ago, And it was a particularly dark night. Uh, I think that the moon was like the opposite of a full moon, and, you know, the stars were covered by the clouds, so it was very hard to be able to see, you know, where I was going. And I need to wake up to go to, you know, the washroom. And it's a little bit of a journey from where my tent was, but thankfully I had my, uh, a a little headband light to be able to light my way. And that light helped me, you know, be able to get to, my, get, get to my destination, get to the washroom, you know, without any real difficulty. And I was able to go to the washroom. And then as I'm making my way back to my tent, my headlight goes out. And suddenly, I am in complete darkness. I have no clue where I am. And I'm like fumbling, like shuffling slowly, hoping I don't, you know, walk into a tree or trip over a rock. I have no idea what is happening. And then to make matters even worse, I hear a rustling sound, like in the bushes, you know, nearby me. And probably it was a squirrel. It was probably just a squirrel, but at that moment, because I'm disoriented, because I'm confused, like I thought that this was probably going to be like a much bigger animal that's going to come out to like bite my leg off or do something, you know, terrible. So in my heart, like I'm actually like pounding and freaking, you know, out, uh, out a little bit because like you know, this squirrel, or maybe it's just even a bird is making noise. But because I can't see what's going on, you know, my mind is now taking me to these, you know, crazy places. Anyways, my experience of darkness was that it was disorienting, it was confusing, I was lost, you know, and I was afraid and confused. 
And just like without, and just like how being, having physical light absent from us creates all these feelings or creates this experience, well, without spiritual light, without light for our spiritual world that is around us and our spiritual condition, we too, we too are going to be spiritually lost, spiritually confused, spiritually disoriented and afraid. And because we are blind, we are going to be unable to see the problem of our sin. This is all caused by, you know, by sin. The reality is that sin is what darkens our hearts to the world. But just as turning on this physical light suddenly changes everything for you, when we have a spiritual life, a spiritual light, it changes how we're able to see the spiritual world around him. And that's why I love what uh, John writes in his prologue in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 4. And he says, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Because Jesus is the light of the world, Jesus is life. And he reveals to us how we may have you know, life in him. And this is how we receive the gospel. When we understand the truth that we are lost in our sin and that our sin makes us guilty before God, deserving our wrath, and when we understand that Jesus died on the cross so that he would take the penalty that we deserved and give us his righteousness instead so that we could have eternal life, when we understand this, it's not because we have suddenly made an intellectual calculation or we've figured out a puzzle, but rather it is because God has healed our spiritual sight. It is God who has illuminated our hearts to see our spiritual condition, which is our sin, to see the darkness that we are surrounded in. And it is him who illuminates us to the fact that he is the only answer for our problem. And so then we come back to John 9, 39, the verse we started with. This is what Jesus means when he says that he has come so that the blind may see that he has come to give us our spiritual sight to help us to see our spiritual condition and see that he is our savior and a few weeks ago we talked about how many christians are waiting to receive their spiritual miracle or waiting to receive some type of miracle before they choose to follow jesus but the good news is the great news is that in fact we have already received each and every one of us a great miracle from God. You know, this miracle that God has done in our hearts to give us spiritual sight, this is far greater than any physical miracle we could ask for. It is as the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, puts it. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. So do you believe this morning that you were spiritually blind and the reason for your faith is not because of anything that you have intellectually arrived to at your own, but rather because Jesus has opened the eyes of your heart? Now, this takes us through most of the core message of John you know, chapter 9, that we are blind and that we need to see. But there's one more important question that we have left to tackle, and that is, 
what prevents us, or is there anything that prevents us from having our spiritual sight restored? Because as you're probably already aware, Jesus has made it clear that not everyone will have their eyes open. There is this group that Jesus says, who is able to see, but will become blind. How do we avoid becoming that group of people? Right? How do we avoid becoming those who see becoming blind? Well, the answer to this question is pride. It is pride, as John is going to explain to us, it is pride that prevents us from having our spiritual eyes open. And when you first read verse 39, the second half of verse 39, you might be confused, like why, like what's really going on on here? Aren't we all spiritually blind here? Like what does it mean that some are able to see? And don't worry, John is actually going to give us the answer to this, or he's going to clarify this for us in the next verses, verses 40 to 41. He makes it clear when he says, some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what, are we blind too? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. So it's, it's clear that those who see becoming blind, it is not really that there are some people that are already able to spiritually, you know, see the truth for what it is. No, it's just people who claim to be able to have spiritual insight. It is people who claim to be able to have answers of who God is. It is, cl- it is people who claim to be able to know the way to God or the way to salvation. So, what does it look like for us to actually, you know, to be living like this? How can we tell if we are living with this kind of a prideful mindset? And I think the easiest way to explain this question, we followed the journey of the blind man, now let's follow the journey of, you know, the Pharisees. Because indeed, when Jesus is talking about these people who claim to be able to see but but will become blind, he is talking about the Pharisees. That is quite specific. So what goes on with the Pharisees during John chapter 9? So I have it up here on, on the screen, but before I go in through these different things that they do, I just want to comment first that, you know, as the religious leaders of the Jewish people, and as the ones who, these were the ones who devoted themselves to the laws, they are the ones who devoted themselves to the customs and to scriptures, you know, our expectation would be is that the Pharisees, more than anyone else, should have been thrilled that the Messiah has arrived to earth, Right? Like, these are the people that were devoted to God, that were having their expectations on uh, God coming to save them. They should have been so happy to see Jesus standing before them as their Lord and Savior. Indeed, they've worked their whole lives for this moment, but as we see throughout John's gospel multiple times, you know, instead of being Jesus' chief cheerleaders, they're Jesus' chief opponents and they've come to despise him more than anything else. And the reason for this really is, is because Jesus, well, he is challenging their worldview, and he is challenging how they thought they could be saved, and ultimately, because of that, he is challenging their pride. The Pharisees, they hope to be able to achieve salvation by proving themselves to be outwardly righteous before God. 
They were hoping to be able to prove that they were worthy of God by how well they followed each of the laws and how well they followed each of their own customs and that because they did all of these things, God should be glad to welcome them into his kingdom. That was you know, their expectation. You know, but Jesus saw through it. He knew that we could not save ourselves, so he saw that their worldview was on shaky ground, and that is why he challenges them so much throughout the Gospels. And despite having numerous conversations over and over and over again, because of their stubbornness and their pride and their, their refusal to give in, they don't listen. They don't allow themselves to be persuaded to think any differently. And as a reader of John's Gospel probably would have thought, like, maybe this last miracle of Jesus did, maybe when he heals this man born blind, that will finally change their minds. That is the sign that these Pharisees need to know that, you know what, we've been wrong this entire time. And yet, after seeing this miraculous sign, or at least investigating and reporting and finding out about it, instead of seeing the Pharisees change their mind, we see them only dig further into their pride. In verse 916, when just trying to find out about the situation, they're already sidetracked into trying to learn about how Jesus must be a sinner for healing on the Sabbath. In verse 24, when they interrogate the man for a second time, you know, they tell him, give glory to God and tell the truth, indicating that they're not actually interested in knowing what happened. They just want this man to, fight, to incriminate Jesus for them. In verse 30, as they continue the conversation, it's clear that when the topic of this man was blind, but now we can see that these Pharisees have ignored and thrown away all the Old Testament references to how this should be a sign of who the Messiah is. And then when we get to verse number 34, the blind man begins to teach them about some of the things that they are getting wrong, the mistakes that they are making, but they refuse to listen, and then finally, they just give up all logical discussion and just insult the man, belittle him, and throw him out of, you know, the synagogue. These great religious leaders are now acting like monsters. And you know what? Like, it's really easy, you know, to be angry at the Pharisees here or to insult them and to think about, man, you know, how stupid they are. If I was in their shoes, I would have acted differently. But the truth is, the reality is, I don't think we would act so much so differently. And in fact, I find that what is happening here, it's actually quite sad. You see, these Pharisees, they missed out on the ability to have relationship with Jesus. And it's not because Jesus didn't offer it to them, but it's because their pride has blinded them to see that invitation, you know, for what it is. I find this uh, quotation from uh, Tim Keller, um, it really nails why spiritual pride is so dangerous and why we must rid ourselves of it. Describing spiritual pride, he says, spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. I specifically, you know, like how he calls it an illusion. Spiritual pride is an illusion. 
We think, we feel that we are competent. We think that we are able to find meaning or purpose or self-worth without God. But it's not true. It's not, you know, real. We are just blinding ourselves to the truth that we can have all these things in Christ and in Christ alone. And so now comes the most difficult part, you know, of this message. And that is for us to acknowledge that spiritual pride is not just a problem for the Pharisees, but it's a problem for us as well. You know, so far in this sermon series, we've identified, you know, several reasons why we can struggle to believe in Jesus or reasons why we struggle to surrender our lives, you know, to him. Like we talked about how it's scary to surrender ourselves over to someone else. You know, we talked about sometimes we're just so used to doing things our own way that we just, you know, it's, it's hard to break that habit. But the truth is, as real as these, you know, reasons are, spiritual pride is one of the reasons why we struggle with believing in Jesus for who he truly is. And one of the reasons why we struggle with surrendering ourselves over to him. And the reason for it is, is, is quite simple. It is just so tempting. It is so tempting to want to be able to say to other people, I have figured out how to be happy by myself. I have figured out how to run my life all by myself. I have figured out my self-worth all on my own. Right? We want to be able to say that. In fact, this world that we live in, our, our culture screams for us, you know, to be able to say that. I think perhaps maybe even more so than any other point in history, maybe because of the way social media is, like we are, our, our culture is screaming to be able to try to present this image of yourself as someone who is greater, as someone who is perfect, as someone who has no blemish. You know, just think about, you know, all, the, all of us who you know, try to project ourselves as being very, very successful by, you know, flaunting, you know, maybe where we are in our job or the wealth that we have or the possessions that we've accumulated so that when our friends from high school find out, you know, what have you been up to, you know, we actually can say, you know what, I turned out well. I figured out my life pretty well. How did you do? Or what about for us as parents when we post pictures of our, you know, children? You know, do we post pictures of our children doing very cute things or being very well-behaved? Or do we post pictures of the time that they, you know, have spaghetti mashed into their head because they refuse to eat with their spoon and their fork? You know, we want to present ourselves as, you know what, I've got this parenting thing figured out. I know what I'm doing. How are you doing? You know, unfortunately, that is, you know, the culture that we're in, and, 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 it, and it has a way of seeping itself into our church where we think in the same way that we need to prove ourselves as great, you know, as successful in our careers or as successful in our families, you know, we got to pr pr uh, prove that we are successful in our spiritual walk. You know, we need to be able to show that we're doing well in our Bible readings or that we pray for this long of a time or that, you know, we have grown this level of kindness or we serve in this many of ministries and we're this, you know, generous, all because we are hoping to be able to prove ourselves to be something to other people and perhaps even to God ourselves. Perhaps even we're trying to prove to God that, you know what, you made the right choice when you saved me. But when we do this, when we begin to go down this path of 
of trying to prove ourselves to one another and, and trying to prove ourselves to God, we start become blind to the truth. And as we've talked about, that truth is that our spiritual condition, our innate state is one of being spiritually deprived. We are not that great. Our hearts are filled with darkness. And that makes us more of like a hot mess than, you know, that great image that we're actually trying to portray to the world. And the strange thing is, it's actually okay that we are this mess. It's actually okay to, to confess and to realize that that's, you know, really where I am in my life right now. In fact, Jesus himself, he wants us to let go of the masks of our pride and to be humble and to just confess before him who he really is. And so in closing today's message, I want us to look at two verses. First, in 1 Peter verses 5 and 6, Peter tells us that God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God wants us to move away from pride and move towards humility. If we remain in our pride, we will not change, but if we acknowledge our weakness and our mess before God, you know, he will show his favor. How does God show, us, show his favor to those who are humble? I think uh, 2 Chronicles 7.14 describes it very well. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear, he, uh, heal their land. Jesus knows that we have nothing to offer him. He knows that we can't make a case for ourselves of being worthy for inclusion with him in heaven. He sees right through it. He sees our brokenness. He sees our lostness. He sees that we are not worth anything on our own. But because Jesus loves you and I so much, he chose to die on the cross for our sins so that we may have eternal relationship with him and so that we may have his righteousness. And so this morning, this is what God wants to shine a light on today in your heart. So are you holding on to any pride in your heart this morning? Are you trying to approve, uh, earn the approval of others and even God himself? And if so, I want to invite you to let go of the illusion. Let go of the illusion that we are something without Jesus. And instead, ask God to open up your, uh, open up your eyes to his glory and to his wonderful grace. Thank you for listening to the Redeemed Community Church Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or links to past Sunday service live streams, please visit us on our website at redeemedchurch.ca or you can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash redeemedchurchtoronto as well as on Instagram at redeemedtoronto.com